Well, if you are uh, at Psalm 33 in your Bible, and you'll, you'll see compared to Psalm 32 and Psalm 34 that there is no heading here in Psalm 33. It doesn't say who the author of this psalm is or what the context is. The book of Hebrews is not the only place in Scripture. It's not the only portion of Scripture where we don't know the author. This is yet another one of those situations where we don't know the author of Psalm 33. And instead of that being a, a reason for you to perhaps uh, be, I don't know, nervous or anxious or upset or whatever, look at it as an opportunity to not focus so much on humans, but to focus more on the God of the Word, the God who inspired all these words, regardless of who the human author was, that we can see the goodness of God in this text. And the first thing we're going to see in this text today, in this beautiful psalm, is that it is good and right that we should praise God. Let's look at the first three verses together, and let's look for this, that it's good and right that we should praise God. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Well, it is good to praise God, isn't it? And it is natural for those who are God's people to praise God. It should be very natural for those of us who know God, who have been redeemed by God, who have been counted among His people, who have gotten to know the faithful God through our personal salvation. It should be quite natural that we would want to sing to God, that we would want to make noise for Him in a praise, uh, praising way. This quote from Charles Spurgeon I thought was just so, so spot on, like many of his quotes. He said about this psalm, When saints wear their coral robes, they look fair in the Lord's sight. A harp suits a blood-washed hand. No jewel more ornamental to a holy face than sacred praise. Praise is the dress of the saints in heaven. It is meet that they should fit it on below. <laughs> what a great quote. A harp suits a blood-washed hand. If you've come to know the Lord through what Jesus has done on your behalf, it is quite fitting that you would praise God and that you would sing to God. And you see, that's the first word of the psalm. Sing. Sing for joy. Now, this is pretty interesting. If you do a, a deep dive on the Hebrew vocabulary here and you break out all your tools that you have uh, to know what the author was meaning to say in the original text, and you examine this word, and you scrutinize it, this word for sing, you know what it really means? Now I got all your attention. It means to sing, okay? It means to sing. Now, uh, th this is just real simple. We are to make noise as God's creatures made in His image. We are to articulate in song our joy that we have in the Lord. You see that too in verse 1. We're not just singing out of, out of nothing. We're singing for joy. We're singing for joy in the Lord. And this is a unique practice of those who bear His image. Those of us that are human beings made in the image of God, male and female, He created them. Here we are, redeemed, bearing God's image, and He's enabled us to sing praises to our Maker. He's enabled us to sing praises to His name, and to do so from a position of joy. Praise is right. When someone is not praising, i.e. not singing, 
it's certainly a sign that something is wrong. It's a sign of no joy. It's a sign of not understanding the joy that we have in the Lord through redemption. Scripture says that the sun, S-U-N, the sun sings. The meadows and the mountains, they sing. Of course, the, the birds sing, but even the rivers sing, Scripture says. How much more should we sing? How much more is it fitting for us to sing praises to our God? And I love this too. In verse 3, we see that new songs are good. Sing to Him a new song. Now, this, of course, could mean an old song that you're a song you know very well, that you're bringing new thoughts to. Just this morning, we were singing In Christ Alone, and for some of you, it may have been the 1,000th time you've sung In Christ Alone. But as you've lived more life, and if you've, as you've experienced more of God in this life, aren't you bringing new thoughts, new experiences, new affections for God that He's worked in you through your life to even an old song? And in that sense, you're singing to Him a new song. But of course, too, in a very literal sense, it's good to sing new songs. Some of you might be more hesitant to sing new songs, but in Christ alone, that song was only written, what, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, there are some songs that we sing that are very old, and that's good, and there are songs that we sing that are very new, and that's also good. So we're to sing to Him a new song, and the other part of that verse, verse 3, we are to play skillfully with a shout of joy. So skillful worship is also good. Skillful worship is good. That we would actually understand what we're doing when we're making music. <laughs> now, insert all the jokes you want here about not being able to sing, not being able to play well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it should be an ambition of ours in our endeavor to praise God, which is good and right and fitting for us. It should be a part of our aim to do so well, not to do so sloppily haphazardly, to not even care about what sounds good or what sounds right, but to do so skillfully. Now, of course, we have to be careful not to make it all about performance. Scripture never tells us to perform for men and appear like we have it all together. That's not it. But there's a balance here, just like there's a balance between new and old songs. There's a balance between playing skillfully or with playing skillfully, that we're not performing, but we're also not going about it haphazardly. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5, verse 19, tells us that it's the Christian duty that we speak to one another in songs and in hymns and in spiritual songs. Have you ever noticed in that verse where it says that we're speaking to one another while we do it? We're not just saying things to God. We're not just praying to God in our songs, though that's a major portion of it. We're also, also speaking to one another. We're admonishing one another. We're encouraging one another. We're building one another up in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, said, He, God, has redeemed us, and we belong to Him. No wonder the worship leader exhorted the people to rejoice, praise, play instruments, and sing to the Lord. A sinner who has been saved by God's grace ought to have no problem praising the Lord. That is so, so true. So as we consider the fact that we should praise, I want us now to consider the why. Why God is worthy of our praise. Now, hopefully you have lots of answers ready for that. Hopefully there are lots of things that come to your mind, why God is worthy of praise. That's a pretty fundamental question in the Christian life. Why should we sing praises to God? Well, the list is infinite. 
But I see in this psalm at least six reasons as to why we are to praise God. Six basics about God's character leading us to recognize His majesty and His worthiness. Let's pick it up in verse 4, and I'll read all the way through verse 17. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, who understands all their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Wow, a lot to see in there. And I want us to go back to verse 4 where I started reading. Reasons why we should praise the Lord. Reasons why we should praise God. Verse 4 tells us that His Word is upright. The first thing we see in verse 4 It says, the word of the Lord is upright. What this means is that God's word is straight. God's word is plumb. God's word is stable. There's no wavering. There's no error to God's word. But God's word is utterly perfect. God's word is absolutely righteous. If you're looking for a a sturdy foundation upon which to build, look to God's word. Some of you know what it's like to build things and how... It's really important that you get things square from the start, because if it's not square from the start, further on down the road, you'll see the effects of it not being square from the start. Well, some of you perhaps have noticed that in your life that things have kind of gotten sideways, that things aren't straight and plumb, and they aren't going the way they should be. And perhaps you haven't started with the Word of God. Perhaps your foundation isn't sturdy like the Word of God. Perhaps it's not upright like the Word of God is. And maybe now it's time to tear things down and go back to basics. Whatever you've built on top, perhaps it needs to be ripped down and you start with the foundation of the Word of God, the most sturdy foundation we can have. And this is reason number one here that I see that we praise God because His Word is upright. When we go to God in song together, as we've been singing here this morning and we'll sing again after the message, As we do that, we should have in our minds that this is the God of the righteous Word. This is the God of the revelation that is stable for us. We see also in verse 4, a second reason, God Himself is faithful. The Word of the Lord is upright, and all of God's work is done in faithfulness. All of God's works are born out of fidelity and truth. There's no backstabbing with God. There's no hypocrisy with God. There's no talking out of both sides of His mouth with God. But God is faithful in all of His works. There's a trustworthiness 
that you can have with God. A trustworthiness that you can have with Him that you can't have with anybody else. You know that today you are His. You belong to Him. He has redeemed you. And you know what? Tomorrow you can bank on it. Tomorrow you will still be His. You are still among the redeemed. He still has you. As Logan highlighted that one line from In Christ Alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from His hand. Nothing can undo the faithfulness of God. God is absolutely faithful in all of His works. Again, from Charles Spurgeon, he said, God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, acts with a hand which never fails. Bless His name. He's praiseworthy, isn't he? he? His tongue never slips, his hand never fails. How amazing. A third reason why we should praise God. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. God, of course, is the author of righteousness and justice. Where do we have righteousness? Where do we have justice without God? It all comes from him. But we see here that he loves righteousness and justice. He loves to display righteousness and justice. And when we experience righteousness and justice in our lives, we're experiencing the goodness of God, aren't we? Because we know that these aspects to life have their home in God, His righteousness, His justice, create righteousness and justice in the world. And when we experience righteousness and justice, we are experiencing the very goodness of God. And these are attributes of God that we ought to reflect in our living. We've been talking about this in the Sunday school class in the coin in recent weeks. There are certain attributes of God that we are able to reflect in our lives. Now, we could never reflect what it means to be infinite. We could never reflect the aseity of God, which means self-sufficiency. God is ultimately self-sufficient. We could never reflect that in our lives. We are dependent creatures. We couldn't reflect God's omnipotence, that He is all-powerful. There's just no way you can replicate that. But righteousness and justice, think of Micah 6, 8. What, what does the Lord require of you? Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. We can pursue these attributes of God in our life, bring those realities to bear in our life. And you know what happens whenever we do that? We please the Lord. When righteousness and justice are reflected in our lives, this pleases God. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that we seek to please Him in every respect, Colossians chapter 1. We need to make it our duty, our aim, Ephesians 5 says, to discover what is pleasing to the Lord. That's an amazing verse. Well, we start with some of these elemental truths, these basic truths that apply to all of us, that righteousness and justice please God. He loves righteousness and justice. And then when you think about where this is all heading, if you have a, a big, high-level view timeline in your head of the history of the world, you know that in the future there's coming a new earth. That's where heaven is. The eternal heaven that we'll be in is the new earth, the new heaven and new earth. That's our heavenly experience into eternity future. But to get to that new earth, God has to purge everything with righteousness and justice. The, the fuel for the fire of the purging of this place is God's righteousness and justice. That's what's going to ultimately lead to the heavenly existence that awaits us. 
God delights in righteousness and justice, and we should pray Him for that, praise Him for that. The fourth thing that we see, the second half of verse 5, is that the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. This should provoke us to praise God, that the earth is full of the hesed, the mercies, the loving kindness of the Lord. God's care for the world should provoke us to praise. And God's care for the world is evident throughout. Notice how the psalmist says here, just matter-of-factly, the earth is full of God's loving kindness. Perhaps some of you have struggled to see the mercies of God in the world. And there are reasons for that. This earth is not perfect. This existence that you live, this world that you're in, far from perfect, isn't it? We see the effects of sin all around us. We see the results of death and the fall everywhere. But don't let that distract you from the reality that the earth truly is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Even through this sinful place, even through the fallen creation, you can see the loving kindness of the Lord. It does take eyes to see it, though, doesn't it? You have to have eyes to see And when God gives you those, you can see His loving kindness everywhere. We see this reflected in God's common grace. When we say common grace, what we mean is just the way that God generally takes care of all people. You don't have to be a Christian to experience the the kindness of God, do you? Absolutely you don't. Some of you lived a long life before you became a Christian. Some of you had decades behind you before you were born again. And you experienced so much of God's kindness in those years, didn't you? Just the, every breath is a gift. If we want to get really granular about it, just the fact that you have your next breath, that's a gift. But the love that all people can experience in loving relationship, family that we have, this is God's gift. Children are a gift from the Lord, and they're even gifted to those who aren't Christians. All the provisions of God, we celebrate Thanksgiving and we have a full table and Christians aren't the only ones that have a full table. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains and God takes care of His world. He takes care of all His creation. All of His creatures experience His kindness to one degree or another. Now, as Christians, we experience the special grace of God, which is salvation. We experience even more of His loving kindness and we'll talk about that later. But it's a reality that the earth is full of the hesed of God. That's the Hebrew word, the mercies of God. And I came across this verse this week. I love this one. Psalm 111, verse 2. It says that those who know God love to study His works. Great are the works of Yahweh, the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. So if you delight in the loving kindness of God, you're going to start seeing the loving kindness of God everywhere. The earth is full of His loving kindness. If you drop down to verse 13 with me, we see God's care, God's provision for all the earth here in these verses, where it says, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all He who understands all their works. God is very much involved in His creation, isn't He? God is very much involved. The the deist philosophy, the view that God created everything and then He's hands off, that's anti-biblical. That goes against the biblical revelation of God. 
Here is a passage that goes right against that thinking. God is looking, observing, watching. He knows what's happening in His creation. He owns it all. He sees it all. He's involved in it all. And He, not, he doesn't just see what happens externally like we do. He sees what's happening in every individual heart. God knows exactly what's going on in the hearts of all people. And He's so patient and He's so gracious with those who are rejecting Him, isn't He? He knows their wicked schemes that start in the heart. He knows the sinful desires that start in the heart before they come to fruition. And yet God is showing day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, His patience and His grace. So depending on your standing with God, these verses 13 to 15, (laughs) they may be a comfort to you or they may be sheer terror to you. God sees all. God knows all. No one can escape God's eyes. But if you're His, that's a great comfort, isn't it? It's a great comfort that we can have that God is so involved in His creation and He cares for His world. The fifth reason I see in this psalm for us to praise God is in verses 6 to 9. God is the creator. He's the creator of all things. And these verses bear repeating. So let's look at them again. Verses 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God is Creator. Capital C, even go all caps. God is Creator. And I'm going to dwell on this point for a while because I really, really, really want you to walk away with this today. That it's absolutely critical. It's essential. It's fundamental. It's foundational. Whatever other word you want to throw in there. It is absolutely necessary that you understand this. There is one Creator. God created all things and He is worthy of worship. He is totally unlike us or any so-called God. There is a great chasm between the Creator and all the creatures. There's a vast chasm. And this distinction is of absolute importance. God is species unique in this sense. There is but one Creator, He is utterly unique. There is is no one else that you can compare to God. To whom shall you liken God? Nobody, because there is only one Creator. He is distinct in His being as the Creator. Let me show you some other passages that highlight this, starting with Psalm 96. You can turn forward with me. We're going to look at a couple passages in the Psalms farther down the road here. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. If you mark in your Bible, if you highlight in your Bible... Make sure this stands out. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. It says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What's the difference between the gods of the peoples and the one true God? One of them made everything. There is one God, there is one Creator, and that is the distinction. 
when you think about what makes our worship unique, you can start here. We worship the one who created everything. Now, perhaps there will be some people who will come down the line and say, well, we worship the Creator too. But once you start examining what they say, no, they do not. We worship the one true Creator, the one who made all things by the breath of His mouth, by speaking words into existence, by commanding it all happen, because He is the Creator and no other God is the Creator. Turn to Psalm 115. Turn a few pages forward. Psalm 115, the first four verses. Another great passage to highlight, to memorize. Psalm 115, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They are the works of man's hands. You see the distinction again between our God and every other so-called God? Every other lowercase g God that exists is the product of a man, is the product of a creature. Now, maybe today you don't see as much people carrying around silver and gold idols or wood carved idols. Perhaps you don't see that as much. But you do see a lot of false gods, don't you? And they're the product, they're the fruit of man's philosophy, the work of of man's imagination to escape the one true God, to try to evade the creator of all things to whom they will be held accountable. We have a lot of so-called gods, and the distinction is one of them made everything. The one true God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And perhaps you noticed in Psalm 96 and here in Psalm 115, that reality is tied directly to God's worthiness of worship. He is worthy to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because He's the Creator. He is the one in charge. He's the ruler of all things. He is the one deserving of all praise. And this vast chasm between Creator and creature what, what does that leave us with? Well, it leaves us with an obligation. As His creatures, we are obligated to return the breath that He has given us to Him in praise. He has given us all that we have. He's given us our life, and we are obligated to return our life to Him. Perhaps you noticed in our psalm today, back in Psalm 33, that the psalmist makes clear that this creation of God, His creative activity was creation ex nihilio, meaning out of nothing. It was creation out of nothing. There was no pre-existing material. There was nothing around that God looked at and said, yeah, I could make something out of that. (laughs) That's not how that worked. He didn't go out to the woodshed and say, what do I got today? That's not how God created all things. But instead, God is the eternally existent one. No matter is eternally existent, but God who is spirit is eternally existent. Out of His good pleasure... Out of, out of the good pleasure of His will, out of the divine decree, God spoke, and out of nothing came all of creation. Look at verse 6 in our text today again. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Verse 9, He spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. What's the, 
the cause-effect relationship here. There's no middleman. God spoke and it was done. There's nothing in between. God didn't have to take anything that was eternal with Him, as if there was such a thing, to make the heavens. Instead, He spoke and it was done. We see this from the very beginning of our Bibles. I'm sure most of you have this memorized. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what? Okay, yeah, I think if we all got together, we could put that verse together. That was good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator. There He is. It doesn't say where God came from because God is eternal. God didn't come from anywhere. He always has been. He's the great I am. He's the ever-present one. And He created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 148, the fifth verse, speaks to this. Psalm 148, verse 5, after the psalmist says, praise the Lord, all you creatures. He lists a bunch of creatures. And then he says in verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. That's the relationship that we have with God. We are the fruit of His creation. We're the offspring of His creative acts. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, one of the most notable verses when it comes to God's creative work, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. You can't look at things under a microscope and say, oh, that's where everything came from. You can't break out your telescope and look at night and and just look as far as you can and say, oh, that's where we came from. No. We are the product of the Word of the Lord. He created out of nothing. And I think the strongest verse in the whole Bible that shows that God created out of nothing is Revelation 4.11. In Revelation 4.11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Now pay attention to this. And because of your will, they existed and were created. You'll come across some people in life who will say, well, yeah, the Bible says God created, but that just means He organized the stuff that was there. There was material, there was stuff that was just hanging around, and He created with it. But did you notice what this verse said? Because of God's will, all of those atoms even existed, and then they were created. The will of God comes before the existence of any atom that exists in the universe. The will of God comes first. Because of God's will, these things exist and they were created. This is an extremely vital doctrine that we hold to, that God is creator. And again, you'll notice in Revelation 4.11, that's tied directly to praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because He's creator. God's false gods, the product of man's hands, they are not worthy. The imagination of man's mind, not worthy. But the one true God who made everything, absolutely worthy of all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. By His word, by His breath, by His command, all things were made. He spoke and it was done. He is all-powerful and that is displayed in creation. And in our Psalm today, if you look at verse 7, we're also told that he's continuing to uphold creation. 
He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. God is continually taking care of His creation. He's taking care of us. He provides water, which is pretty essential. Wayne, are you drinking your water over there? I always have to remind Wayne to drink his water because water is important. Well, where does water come from? The water cycle didn't start itself. God is the one who's taking care of us. Colossians 1.17, this is talking about Jesus in particular, but in Colossians 1.17, it says that all things are held together in Christ. How is it that everything is just continuing to go and everyone is taken care of? How is it? Well, all things are held together in Christ. God didn't just create and then go hands off. He continues to work in His creation. And as His creatures, what are we? We are absolutely dependent on Him, aren't we? We can't give ourselves water. We can't hold all things together. But we are dependent on God and we praise God that in His kindness, He has created and continues to provide for us. God is the only self-sufficient one. We are not self-sufficient, which is a very big lesson in life to learn. Some of us are still struggling to learn that one. We are not self-sufficient. God is. He's the only self-sufficient one. Well, the point of all of this in our psalm today is that God has comprehensive rulership that flows out of His status as Creator. Because God is the Creator, He has absolute rulership over the earth. Look at verse 6 again with me. Look at the word all. By the breath of His mouth, all their host were made. Look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Drop down again to verse 13 with me. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. Verse 14 From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. This is comprehensive. As creator, God rules over all. He is Lord over all. No one escapes God's rulership. And that's the sixth and final reason from the psalm today, why we are to praise God. He is the sovereign God is the sovereign ruler, and for that fact, He is worthy of our praise. All of God's plans will win out. He is sovereign. One commentary I was looking at this week titled this psalm, Maker and Monarch. God is both maker and monarch, isn't He? He is the maker of of all things and the sovereign ruler of all things. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. So nations may may try what they'd like, but God's going to win, isn't He? God is going to win out. They will not, they cannot override God. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, wrote, God is not only all discerning, but all prevailing. That's a very important sentence. God is not only all discerning, but all prevailing. He goes on to say, even now in a corrupt world, human force has not the last word. 
Where it does succeed, the Old Testament assures us that this is by divine decree, not by its own ability. (laughs) Human force, where it does succeed, it's not by its own strength, but it's by God's allowing it to happen. This is communicated directly, verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. You think America needs to hear this? The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, and a tank, and an airplane, and a battleship. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. The only national hope that any people could ever have is God Himself. The only strength a nation really has is not their own. And this this can kind of seem like the great secret to life, but it's really quite obvious. If, for anybody who's studied history, for anybody who's looked at Israel's history, a nation's strength is not its own. Strength has to come from God, the maker of all things, the provider, the preserver of all things. As maker of all, God is the strength of all who turn to Him. Look at the book of Jonah, or consider the book of Jonah. Jonah went out to Nineveh. And the text says Nineveh was a great city, big, vast city, three days' journey to get across the city. Big, powerful city. And Jonah's message of hope that he brings to the city is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. (laughs) And they all fell to their knees. They crumbled. The king issued a decree and said, let's put sackcloth on the cattle. We need to repent. We're about to be destroyed. There was a recognition because of God's working in those people. There was a recognition at that time. We are not our own strength. But the strong one, the maker of all things, he will judge us in wrath, in his righteous wrath. We must repent. And as I was thinking about that this week and its implications for America, I came across this old Bible that we have. Oh, I shouldn't say old. I better be very careful what I say is old. It's from 1943. (laughs) Sorry about that for some of you. But uh, this little Bible um, belonged to my my great-grandpa Lucas, David Lucas. Uh, He lived in Bell Vernon, Pennsylvania, south of Pittsburgh, southwest Pennsylvania, small town. Given to him in 1943 when he was in the service titled at the, at the top here, most of you won't be able to see this, but it says, A Spiritual Gift. Okay. And as you turn the page, the very next page, there's a note in here from Franklin Roosevelt from the White House, Washington. It says it right at the top. To the armed forces. Now listen to what Franklin Roosevelt said. As commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. Throughout the centuries, men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book, capital S, capital B, sacred book, words of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a fountain of strength, and now, as always, an aid in attaining the highest aspirations of the human soul." Very sincerely yours, Franklin Roosevelt. Now, that's not as strong of a statement as I would have written, but I'll cut FDR some slack on that one, okay? 
But there's an indication here, there's an acknowledgement, a, a, a very basic acknowledgement from the President of the United States that our strength is not our own. A recognition that we have to appeal outside of ourselves to the maker of all things, to the one who has revealed himself in the sacred book, that we have to appeal to him, look to him for strength. And nations must do this just as much as individuals do. Creation doesn't save creation. Creation can't save creation. Only the Creator can save creation. Turn back just a few psalms to Psalm 20. Look with me at Psalm 20 and see this very blunt, strong declaration in verses 6 and 7. The 20th Psalm, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Some boast in how big their military is and how big their budget is and how big you know, their, their agencies are. But we should be boasting in the name of the Lord our God. And there's been a lot of chatter lately about Christian nationalism and what that is and if we should have it. I don't label myself as a Christian nationalist, but I know this much. We need more of this. We need more commanders-in-chief recognizing that our strength comes from the God of Scripture, the God who has revealed Himself in the Bible. And so we should pray for that. As God's church, we should pray for that here. Wow, I've been preaching a long time. Sorry. I guess I should get to the second half of my sermon. Uh, <clears throat> So we start to come full circle here, and we refocus on how this impacts us, how this leads to praise. Verses 18 to 22. Let's read over this, uh, these last five verses. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. We see here that God's good care is chiefly focused on His own people. Now, I mentioned earlier that the earth is full of God's loving kindness. We see God's care in the world generally. But the chief object of God's care is His people. That's a great, great promise that we have, a people for His own possession. Notice in verse 18, these two modifiers, the, the eye of the Lord is on His people. Well, who are His people? First, it's those who fear Him. Those who fear Him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear God, who fear the one who has all power and all strength. God doesn't protect and uphold like He does His own people, those who ignore Him. Those who ignore the reality of God and don't bring that to bear on their lives, His eye isn't on them, it says, but on those who fear Him. And God is worthy of fear, isn't He? The all-powerful and just God, the strongest one, the one with all power. Some of you perhaps are fans of uh, C.S. Lewis and the Narnia series. There's that interaction about Aslan, the lion, and the question of, is he safe? Aslan there, who is representing the power of God, is he safe? Well, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's the reply. Our God is strong, isn't he? 
He's great. He's mighty. Not exactly what we think of when we think safe, but He's also good. He's a good God who is absolutely worthy of fear. So we fear the good God. We don't fear death. We don't fear man. We fear God alone. And we are also those who hope in Him. That's the second modifier. There are those who fear Him and those who hope for His loving kindness, not those who trust in themselves. God doesn't help those who trust in themselves. God, trusts, or God helps those who trust in Him. God helps those who are dependent on His mercy and profess that. So we see that there's a, a simultaneous fear and comfort that we have with God. We fear Him and we're dependent on Him for mercy, knowing that He is good. We have this relationship with God as His redeemed creatures that we simultaneously fear God and get comfort from God. We see this in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 13 and 14, perhaps the clearest passage on this simultaneous reality, where it says, oh, I guess I should have done 12 and 13, not 13 and 14. Verse 12 says, work out your own salvation. And you're not just to do it flippantly, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it says. So Christian, how are you to go about this life? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then we get verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So unless someone is spooked out by verse 12, they can look at verse 13. And if someone takes things too loosely because of 13, they can go back to verse 12. We both fear God and receive comfort from God in this life. We are supremely comforted by the assurances of the gospel that God is the one at work for His good pleasure in our lives. That should be a great comfort to us that God Himself came down and took on flesh, that He walked among us, that He lived a perfect life, and that He died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day, that if we believe in His finished work, if we trust in the finished work of Jesus, we have salvation, we have utter assurance, we have rest from our own work because we trust in the works of God, and we have eternal hope and peace and joy. We trust in these assurances. We glean utmost comfort from these gospel realities. And then we seek to be holy. While believing, we seek to spend the rest of our time on earth to be holy for God, conducting ourselves in fear. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, that if you fear God, if you fear your Father, who is a righteous judge, then You ought to conduct yourselves in fear for the rest of your time on earth. That's an ought for the Christian. So we seek holiness, to be holy even as He is holy. And we need to be fearful of sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul instructs that young pastor, he says, those who who go about sinning, who rebel against the Lord and His ways, rebuke in the presence of all that they may be fearful of sinning. That's a legitimate Christian fear if we want to please God. And so we glean assurances from the gospel and we live in the fear of the Lord, revering Him above anybody else, revering Him above all others because He is the Creator and He is holy. And our commission is to be holy even as He is holy. And as we are counted among those, again, verse 18, as we're counted among those who fear God and who hope in His loving kindness, we see the result right here in this passage. Verse 19, result number one, Life. What, is, what does God do? He delivers their soul from death 
and keeps them alive in famine. There is spiritual life and physical life here spoken of from God to those who fear Him and hope for His loving kindness. Spiritually, our souls are delivered from death, and even physically, God spares them, keeps them alive in famine. How many times have people tried to rid God's people off the face of the earth? Whether we're tracing Israel, whether we're tracing the church through history, whatever it may be, how many times have people tried to just, boop, put out that flame? God keeps them alive, doesn't He? God just amazingly, in His sovereign grace, keeps His people alive. So the first result is life. Second result, verse 20, help. We not only have life, but we have help from God. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. As we are waiting for our final salvation, as we're waiting for the appearance of the Lord in glory, we have in the waiting help from God. Just like last week we saw in Psalm 28, God is our shield that's repeated here. He's our help. He is our shield. He's our protector as we journey along with one heart and one soul. I love this in verse 20 that we're just looking at. Notice that it says that our soul, our, plural, soul, singular. And in the next verse, it talks about our heart. Not only our soul, but our heart. God's people together, those who fear Him, those who hope for His loving kindness. We have one heart and soul. The early church, it says about them, they gathered together. They were of one mind. They were of one accord, one heart, one soul. We have one help, don't we? We have one help and shield, the Lord who made us. A third result, verse 21, we see joy. Our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. We have a joy in the Lord in addition to the life and the help that He gives. We have joy. And it's founded on God's goodness. It's in His holy name, verse 21 says. We trust in His holy name. That leads us to rejoicing. We have an informed hope. It's not wishful thinking. This is an informed hope. We know of God. We know of His ways. And that leads us to joy. This verse shows us that trust and joy go hand in hand too, don't they? It says, we rejoice because we trust in Him. You know what this means for you, Christian? You won't be rejoicing in God if you don't trust Him. You can't. You can't rejoice in God if you don't trust in God and all of His ways. And as we come together in our corporate worship, we come together to praise His name, we're encouraging one another in these ways to be joyful because we trust Him together. And in all of this, verse 22, another result, we experience more of His hesed. There's that word again, His mercies, His loving kindness. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we, is, as we have hoped in you. Of course, His loving kindness is in the world. We looked at that in verse 5. Generally speaking, His mercies are everywhere. They're new each morning. We can see the loving kindness of God. We know that His loving kindness is our hope. We just looked at verse 18. We hope for His loving kindness, and we know that as we trust in Him, we will receive it. As we trust in God, as we hope in God, we will receive more of His loving kindness. Another verse I came across this week that I think you'll appreciate is in 2 Chronicles. This is when the prophet was confronting King Asa. 2 Chronicles 16.9. 
For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. As we go to God trusting in him, we have confidence that he's our life, our help, our joy. We get more and more of his loving kindness. And now the psalm really does come full circle because another result of trusting in this God, verse 1, praise. Why do we praise? Because we've come to know God. We've experienced the love of God. He's worthy, and so we praise Him. There's a song that was written within the last couple of years titled, With Each Borrowed Breath. And it opens up by saying, With each borrowed breath you give, every sacred day I live, Lord, my declaration is, I will worship you. Every hour is a gift, passing like a morning mist. The passion of my heart is this, I will worship you. So it is fitting for us as his people to celebrate him, to praise his holy name, to celebrate the Lord and his works. And it's only for us who know him. How unfitting is it for an unbeliever to try to praise God? And that's one of the really the sad aspects in the especially American church today. So many tares are trying to act like wheat. You've got so many unbelievers seeking to worship a God they don't even know, seeking to act like Christians, be like Christians, though their heart isn't completely His, though they haven't trusted the Lord. It's not fitting that they would praise Him. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who have come to know Him, for those of us who declare the gospel, who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, it is only fitting that we would praise His name. What, what, what could we do that would be more fitting than to celebrate the Lord who came down to us and ransomed us, His enemies, to make us His own forever and ever? It's the fruit of our knowledge of God. It's our beauty as God's people. Praise is our beauty. And it's our honor to honor Him, isn't it? It's an honor to be able to sing the majesties and the glories of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of praise. We do not come before a God in this moment who is unworthy, but we come before the maker of all things, the one creator of all things. We come to you in worship, praising your holy name. And we ask that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would view each moment as worship, that we would deliberately, intentionally, mindfully seek to worship you in every area of life because you are God and you are good. You are worthy to be feared and you are worthy to be praised. We bless your holy name in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.